This is a podcast for Indelible, the documentary in progress for the week of March 8th, 2018. Yesterday I had a painfully odd email exchange with the director of the nonprofit I spoke about in the letter I narrated last week and in the podcast for March 3rd, so in the previous podcast. I'm used to such exchanges, unfortunately. I recognize the language they use. It's funny as no matter who is speaking to me in any of these emails, they always sound like the same person. It's as if there is a poverty of language when these tactics are employed. And I'm always left with a sense of sadness for the lack of empathy behind these words. And for a sadness for the person who feels they must engage in such distortions. It is a form of gaslighting that is used, where the opposite of what is factual is put forth as fact, and then insults and personal attacks are expressed for questioning them. I never had this type of experience until I stumbled into Carnegie Mellon University and served on their faculty. And it was there that I learned this mode of human expression is how false authorities attempt to keep one from questioning their destructive actions. It's often employed by their lawyers, lawyers who have gone to what I might call the dark side. They have lost touch with their ability to care about the common good and any sense of connection with other human beings who are not in their immediate circle. I can shake these experiences off more quickly now than when I first experienced them. From this encounter, I was able to learn something about the kid survivor situation who is currently in federal prison. It is this director's job to make sure inmates are treated fairly and humanely. But in the case of Defer, the former kid, it was communicated unequivocally This will not be considered. This is something I do not understand. How one can stand behind a mission with such lofty ideals, yet turn away from them for some reason. And the reason in this case appears to be that false authorities have deemed Dufer should not be be treated equally under the law. At the same time, I was reading old news articles about Defer's actions that landed him in federal prison. I found several articles that said the shooting of Kenneth Ward was April 24, 1979. That was yet another date for his death. Now I had found three dates. I think this was just sloppiness in the part of the reporter, but in three articles? It's just so strange. And I read the articles on his trial for the shooting of uh, Kenneth Ward, the customs officer. One of his two lawyers, Kelly Cobb, repeatedly referred to his mercenary training as a young teen. It then went on to say he got his training from a revolutionary group, Tribal Thumb, in Humboldt County, California. This conveyed to the jury a falsehood. Defer was called down to tribal thumb by his former cellmate, L, who I've referred to in other podcasts. 
and that was his former cellmate from um, Duell Vocational Institute, DVI, to train others in military arms and tactics. Defer was trained by a special forces personnel, a man he referred to as Cat, who targeted him at the age of 14. Why did his defense attorney skew facts like this? They had a psychiatrist interview Dufer three times, who said he was gravely impacted by this training and that it resulted in his actions, which resulted in the death of Ward. But then his attorney glossed over this in court and even reversed the facts of his training for the jury. He gaslighted them. Why? There was information about the shooting as well. Defer shot Ward twice. On the first shot, he likely died. Defer made a second shot as he laid on the ground. This does, this does show intent, or it shows Defer acted robotically because of his training. Had Defer not been trained, he would not have been there with his gun that day. I also learned new information about Defer's escapes from DVI, it's the Youth Correctional Facility in Tracy. There were two. The first was in 1974, and the second was in 1977. DVI was a very violent place. A contract allegedly had been taken out on his life by a gang within DVI. So he escaped. It was after the 1977 escape that he met Marie. And he told me he met her through his former cellmate, L. Again, L was also the person who called him back to California from Washington State, where he was hiding out to do the training at Tribal Thumb. After the shooting of Ward, Dufer and Marie tried to escape in their car at a Chevy Vega. We all know what that kind of car is. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, they ran into trouble and the car landed in a recently plowed field. They got out and removed their shoes and ran across the muddy field. At 2 a.m., Marie was apprehended. One accounting said they were running across a road and were spotted and she was taken which reminds me of, like, deers crossing the road at night. Another said she was sitting by a railroad, a railroad track by herself, and Defer had gone on. Defer was found hours later. While sitting in court, I believe for arraignment, Marie wrote a poem, and this is it. In a courtroom, I sit waiting for an answer, for killing a man I had to do, for killing a wife I loved so much. The prosecutor read this to a judge. It seemed to take the perspective of Defer, as if she was trying to understand his actions and his history, which she had just learned. And later, a reporter stated they sat in court in their jail-issued jumpsuits and sandals, holding hands. 
Defer described to me in emails over the past year that he had, that she had been his best friend. This seems true given these small details. It shows Defer was capable of love and loyalty, as was Marie. But they also show he had a mindset of a trained soldier and as if he was endlessly in the throes of war. <coughs> Excuse me. He was trained as a soldier at too early an age by a highly ranked soldier from special forces who worked for the government and trained others around the world. Was defer on a mission under contract when he killed Ward? I don't know. I still find it important that he was so unfazed as to travel across international borders when he was a, f a wanted felon. Was he merely intending to kill rather than go back to prison, as the prosecutor argued? Maybe, but then it has to be considered that he felt no concern about being called back to the state of California by his former cellmate, L when he was out as an escapee, which put him at high risk for recapture. So something seems off. And then we have the fact that his lawyer distorted his history, shifting the spotlight away from who actually trained him as a mercenary, telling a false history and trying to shield the jury from considering who really trained him. And Dufour allowed this to happen. Why? The director at the nonprofit made it clear that Dufour would receive no help from his organization. He distorted the very mission of his organization to support this position. And he said he was close friends with the attorney, Jason Wallach, who I have said once worked for a large firm in D.C. who does defense work for the Department of Homeland Security, and which still seems to clearly be a conflict of interest in Defer's civil case, which is about the denial of his release, helped by the actions of the Department of Homeland Security. This man conveyed Mr. Wallach was not likely ever intending to be Defer's attorney, which does make sense, but that he had been asked to do so by Defer's legal helper. This director also claimed that Defer's legal helper is a credible man. Defer met him in Marion, one of the highest security federal prisons in the United States, where they were both inmates. His legal helper and Mr. Wallach last November both asked me to download Defer's case documents from PACER and send them to Mr. Wallach. Defer asked the same of me in September. This made no sense. I'm a media artist in Seattle with very little money. They work for the courts. It appears this is another gaslighting element. The director defended this action, saying they did not have access to PACER. But everyone has access. Everyone. Anyone in the United States has access. This does not seem like honest behavior, and many, many attorneys have backed my feeling regarding this. So defer, it seems, does have legal 
or excuse me, does not have legal support for his civil case. And those who said they are helping him seem to be working against him and mocking his case. Defer does not express much about this. Why? As I said in the last podcast, it is almost as if he does not want to be released. But why not? And the director of a nonprofit whose job it is to help inmates protect their rights and who works closely with the Parole Commission in Washington, D.C., and so the Department of Justice, is very comfortable playing along to deny the rights of an inmate in Defer's case. He is being selective. In my effort to make sure a human being, Defer, is safe, is seen as wholly objectionable and worthy of attack or worse. How many people have the people who work for law and for in law enforcement killed or those who were in the military? What about those who killed civilian men, women, and children in Guatemala or in the endless wars for greed today? What of those soldiers who trained Dufer? How many have they killed? What are the rights? What are their rights? Excuse me, I'll start that again. Why are their rights protected and defers denied? Why is asking this question seen as objectionable and intolerable? Honestly, it seems to be about false authority. If you are aligned with false authority, you are protected. If you are not for some reason, you are a threat to them. And it is fair game to torture or kill you or wrongfully imprison you. And the courts and law enforcement play along. Something is wrong. And Dufer and Marie appear to be human beings, as was was Kenneth Ward. He didn't deserve to be killed that night. It wasn't a war zone but Defer's trainer made it into one. And that's all I've got for today. Have a good week.